the church a spiritual community. This is part four. Uh, and while each message stands alone, there is certainly a theological building one upon the other. So if you enjoy this and want to learn more, I would encourage you to go back to the beginning message and work your way up through them. Um, this is a series, we normally work through books of the Bible. We're not going to be less biblical, I trust, during this series. We're, we're, we're going to engage each topic in a text that is about that. However, uh, if you were to just kind of spin me around and figure out which way I go when you let go, this is the direction my heart beats in, in so many ways. And so this series has been, in, for me, an, an enjoyable time. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we engage God's Word. Heavenly Father, we have been created by your word. Not just our physical lives, but our life in Christ. The fact that we are new creatures comes because you said, let there be light. And in our hearts, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shone. And Lord, you created us by your word, and your word has authority over our lives. It speaks to us, it guides us, it forms us into the people you want us to be, people you call us to be. Do that a miraculous work even through this offering of this message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The title of this particular message, of course, the series title, The Church of Spiritual Community, this is part four, but this, the subtitle for this message, Barriers and Blinders to Spiritual Community. Barriers and Blinders to Spiritual Community. What is the greatest obstacle to community in the church? I mean, it doesn't take a genius to recognize that the church is called to be a spiritual community. Whatever else a spiritual community is, and we've talked about other aspects of it, but whatever else it is... It's a community. Yet many would object that their experience of church life has not been one of community. Maybe that's your experience. I don't know, but why not? Why has that not been their experience? What keeps us from getting there? What is the great hindrance to community? Well, do any of these describe you? Some for instance, you, maybe you've never attempted to find community. Walking by the shop, seeing community on the mannequin in the window was enough for you to keep walking right past the front door. No thanks, not interested. Maybe you think sermons about community are bothersome. Who needs community? It's not worth it. I'm doing just fine as I am. And frankly, I much prefer life without it. Maybe that describes you. Or maybe you've desired community but have been hurt by it. So you've kind of done a, uh, tried that, don't think I want to try that again. Maybe you've desired it, even attempted to pursue it, and have concluded that community is a big tease. It's not willing to be caught. Like Dorothy's search for the great Oz. You're afraid it just turns out to be a funny old man behind a curtain. Some of you may have assumed that coming to Christ meant that, that you would automatically find yourself in a church filled with harmonious relationships Enjoying one another's company all the way to heaven. And your experience has disappointed you. Why, why do many have these experiences? If, is it everyone else's fault? Is there something wrong with me? 
Is it a great hoax? If it can be experienced, this spiritual community we speak of, if it, if it can be experienced, how? What must I do? Well, let's turn to our text and, and explore together what I believe are these, the answers to these questions. And we'll explore these answers under three headings or three questions, if you will. The first is, do you want the community that Jesus describes? The second, why do so few people experience the blessing of community? And the third, why is this community so hard to find? So let's engage uh, with this first one. Do you want the community that Jesus describes? Mark 10, 29 through 31, if you'll read with me. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What does a saved life, a rescued life, look like? Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but what what does this saved life look like? In Mark chapter 4, so we're in Mark's gospel, there's a, a probably, well, certainly considered one of the most important parables Jesus ever taught, a well-known parable called the parable of the sower. And he, Jesus tells this parable to all would-be disciples. The sower goes out to sow the word. The word is the message about the kingdom. It's the gospel. The sower goes out to sow the word. It falls indiscriminately on various types of soil. But those who hear the word are, and are the good soil are those who hear, accept, and bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Of course, the parable calls attention to the folly of being any other kind of soil. You're in real trouble if you're of any of these other kinds of soil. Bearing fruit is not an optional response. The desire of anyone hearing that parable from the lips of Jesus is to be the soil that bears fruit. In fact, let's face it. You read that parable and you're thinking, well, if it's some 30, some 60, some 100 full, well, I want the 100. Why would I want 30 or 60? If the option of 100 is there, I want that, right? The more the merrier. It draws our attention to that. It, 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 it pulls that desire from us. Okay, hold that in mind. Mark chapter 8, four chapters later. Jesus, the, the sower, he is the sower, by the way, ultimately, He gives us another installment in teaching us what is necessary to be a fruit-bearing disciple. Verse 34, Mark 8, 34 and 35. If anyone would come after me, let him, or better said, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Whoever would save his life? We'll lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Now, just prior to this, Jesus had asked the disciples, Who do you say I am? And Jesus said, Well, you're the Messiah. Which for Peter had nationalistic and potentially militant connotations. Jesus immediately begins to redefine the meaning of Messiah by telling them that he is going to Jerusalem 
to suffer and be crucified. Well, Peter would have none of it. And Jesus quickly rebukes Peter's ideology and then turns to the rest of the disciples to explain that anyone who wants to follow him, anyone who would claim to identify Jesus as the Messiah, must also identify with him by taking their cross and following him. Identifying with Jesus involves denying self and losing our very self for Jesus' sake in the gospel. And in so doing, we will save it. In so doing, we will no longer be a part of the defeated enemy's kingdom, but rather we'll be a part of Christ's kingdom. His messianic kingdom. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he gives us a, 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 a win-lose proposition, if you will. The catch is that in order to win, you have to lose. Lose your very own life, your very self for the king's sake and the gospel. Richard Hayes puts it well when he writes, When we embrace Mark's answer to the question, Who do you say that I am? We are not just making a theological affirmation about Jesus' identity. We are choosing our own identity as well. You see, when, when Peter says, well, you're the Messiah, Peter may not have realized it, but suddenly what Peter just said about Jesus' identity has everything to do with what's going to be Peter's identity. He's going to be somebody who now takes up his own cross and follows Christ. Just as Jesus laid down his very self, so Peter's going to have to learn how to lay down his very self. And that's the call to discipleship. When we answer the question about who Jesus is, and that answer is the Messiah, then we are also not just identifying him, but we're choosing our own identity as well. So, Mark 4, the parable of the sower here in Mark 8. Both the parable of the sower in Mark 4 and this text about losing our life in order to save it in Mark 8 have big connections in our present text in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30 in particular. Big connections. First connection is the repetition of this idea of 100-fold, 100 times. The attentive listener has been thinking, if they've been hearing Mark's gospel, and I realize that most of us, we hear Mark's gospel kind of spread out over long periods of time. If it's in our devotions, we're reading it. You know, we break it up and we go through it slowly and, you know, we get there and that's fine. But in a typical audience where this gospel was shared, they heard it all at one time. They were a, a, a community of, of storytelling, and that's what they did. They didn't go to the movies. They'd go and hear somebody proclaim this kind of thing. And so they would hear it all at once. So the attentive listener from Mark chapter 4 has been saying, what does it look like to have this hundredfold fruit-bearing life? How do I get that? What is it like? And all of a sudden in 10, this hundredfold comes up again. They're tuned in. They're, oh, here it is again. Here it is. And that connection is there. Suddenly we get a sense of what the fruit might look like. It's a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. The second connection from Mark chapter 8. So that's the one from Mark 4 and Mark chapter 8. Is the repetition here in Mark 10 of the phrase, for my sake and for the gospel. In, eight, in chapter 8 verse 35, we're called to lose our life, our very selves, for my sake in the gospel, and then we will find it. 
Here in chapter 10, losing our very self morphs into leaving house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or lands. And saving our life morphs into receiving a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, the life we gain is not just someday. The life we gain is now in this present time and is experienced in the community called the church. It's worth noticing, I believe, it's worth noticing that the or of verse 29, the repeated or, is morphed or changed into a repeated and in verse 30. I think it's significant. Let me explain what I mean. Unless Jesus is describing the church as the reward of verse 30, this switch from or to and makes no sense at all. If it's what the modern church describes as sowing and reaping, then it should be or and then remain or. If you give up, for instance, pumpkin seeds or apple seeds, you will receive a hundredfold pumpkins or apples. You would not say to somebody, if you give up pumpkin seeds or apple seeds, you'll receive a hundredfold pumpkins and apples. That makes no sense. Unless you're telling them that if you give up pumpkin seeds or apple seeds or zucchini seeds or broccoli seeds, which I don't know if you can grow that from a seed, but if you give up all those things, you get pumpkins and apples and broccoli and squash and tomatoes. and Why? Well, because you get the whole orchard. Once you sow and give up into the orchard, you get everything. Now, if you're saying that, then it makes sense to switch it from or to and. But if you're not saying that, if you're just talking about what a lot of people teach as sowing and reaping, well, you know, if you give this, you're going to get more of that back, which makes it a very self-centered thing, by the way. If that's what you're saying, then there's no way you would change it from or to and. But you see, Jesus is saying, if you give up houses or land or mother, father, children, or fields, you get back, not or, but and, all of the above, a hundredfold. Why? Because you get the whole orchard. It's called the church. It's called the church. It's it's like saying, whatever kind of seeds you lose that I ask for, you receive a hundred times as much from everything in the whole orchard. And you'll get it in the most unlikely of places, the church. When the gospel is sown, it intends to bear fruit. How does the gospel work to bear fruit? Well, the gospel works to bear fruit first by calling us to lose our life for Christ's sake in the gospel. That's what we saw in chapter 8, verse 35. And in so doing, we're promised that we'll save our life. Mark 10, 29 describes the ways in which we will lose our life for Christ's sake in the gospel. And Mark 10, 30 describes how it is returned to us in a rescued life. Jesus called the rich man, that's the context of where we are, this text that we read falls at the end of the story about the rich man who came to Jesus running, bowing down. Oh Lord, what must I do to inherit this eternal life? 
And of course, he, you know the story, he goes away sad because he had great wealth. So in other words, he left with nothing because he had everything. He couldn't let go. He couldn't lose his life and therefore save it, therefore he got nothing. He, he did not lose it, and therefore he does not get houses, lands, mother, father, brothers, sisters, etc. With persecutions and in the age to come, life unending. But that's what the rich man was called to. You see, we often get it wrong. <clears throat> he calls him to give up everything. He calls us to give up everything. And so what? So that we inherit the church. And in the age to come, life unending. We, we think of those as two very distinct things. And we kind of have it as an either or. Well, we give up, some, but, but we get eternal life. We follow Jesus, we get eternal life. And, and this other stuff that we give is kind of optional. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying, you forsake and you find life in this present time. We're in the church. And oh, by the way, in the age to come, you get the same thing and it's unending. It's not like you get something else and it's unending. No, you get that and it's unending. Notice in the book of Revelation, when we get there, we finally get to the end. What do we come to? You don't have a, a mansion in the countryside. You're in the city of God. We often envision ourselves as, you know, we're going to have Jesus. I'm going to have my own mansion, live there all by myself. I'm, I'm going to have peace and quiet. i got news for you, baby. <laughs> it's a city. People join together. Reorients our thinking. <clears throat> Do you want the hundredfold life that Jesus describes? It's found in a spiritual community called the church. And the church is such a blessing that Jesus calls it 100 times. It's like the most bountiful and abundant life one can imagine. Such a blessing that it is the same as the saved life that, that one ought to gladly lose one's life in order to gain. If that's the case, you might reasonably ask, then why do so few ever experience this blessing of community? And, and why is it so hard to find? Well, let's address those one at a time. So... The second question we're going to answer today, the first of those two, is why do so few ever experience this blessing of community? <clears throat> Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive. Just pause there. Receiving the blessing of the community of Christ has a prerequisite. We must leave or forsake homeland, mother, father, sister, brother, children for Jesus' sake and the gospel before we can expect to receive the inheritance Christ has for us in the church. In fact, Jesus says there is no way that the person who has forsaken will not receive right now the blessing of community in Christ. The emphasis is on the right nowness of that aspect. Now, the present time. He, he, he's really emphasizing that you get it now. In other words, as one commentator puts it, an older commentary, he said, if the latter is not found the case, it is through the absence of the former. The hundredfold compensation is so certain that it's not having been received presupposes the not having forsaken. In other words, if we aren't seeing the community, the number one obstacle 
we should look at is, have we forsaken self? Because without forsaking self, there's no promise that the, the reward is had. In other words, it's like Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter's all concerned about, well, what about us? We've given up everything, Lord. I mean, are we going to get this too? I mean, you're talking about it so hard, Jesus. Are, are we going to get it? And it's like Jesus is saying, Peter, you've already begun to experience it. Don't you see it? Or more on that in a moment, why, why he didn't see it. The now tells us that we don't have to wait for this part. To, to put it another way, since whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, then, then losing one's life is the prerequisite for saving one's life. And in the language of Mark chapter 10, our text today, we lose our life in the same way the rich man at the beginning of the story in Mark 10 was told to lose it. In his case, sell everything he had and give it to the poor. Why? Because his wealth was his life, gone. That was the prerequisite for gaining it. So he went away sad, and though he was rich, he went away with nothing. He didn't get the hundredfold reward, and he didn't get eternal life. The call that Jesus gives to the rich, gave to the rich man is the same that he gave to the disciples in Mark 8, 35. It's not like, you know, a lot of times people say, sure glad Jesus didn't ask me what he did to the rich man. Yes, he did. Mark 8, 34 and 35, it's right there. Anyone who would be my disciple. It's the same call to everyone. That we lose our very self. Peter was concerned that the disciples had given up everything and might still not be saved because it was so difficult. The inheritance of eternal life comes with the church. But many people don't want the inheritance. Few would consider giving up much of anything, much less their very self, if the reward is the church. Like, uh, no thanks, I'll pass. Have you been to my church? you seen the church? you, you understand what you're talking about? Preacher gone mad? Yet that's the very reward that Jesus dangles before us. Yet few find it. Few find it. Many fail to find it because they haven't left the key thing that we must lose. When Jesus says he must lose his life and then he'll save it, it could also read his very self. Probably the intended meaning anyways. His very self. Many, many are, aren't willing to make the trade. My very self for what? Look around. The church? I mean, do you realize how obnoxious Scott can be about that whole, like, go down to the abortion clinic and pray thing? I mean, does he? Of course, if you're in Scott's shoes, you know, he's like, do you realize how uncaring people can be about what's going on in their own neighborhood? The church is difficult for both you and him, right? So it's a difficult place. It's, we all have our, like, it's It's people. Apparently, the rich man thought it was absurd, too. Jesus called the rich man to give up everything in order to gain, ultimately, if Mark 10, 29, and 30 mean everything, or mean anything, the church. By following Jesus, and in the age to come, more of that life unending. Eternal life. The city of God. In Mark 10, 29, and 30, Jesus speaks about the priority and blessing of the community of God also known as the church, in such a way that he expects us to understand it as a reward. So much so that we are glad to forsake all to gain it. 
Larry Crabb wrote the following. He said, and I hope we will also see that God has called us to spiritual community with him and with his people. It isn't an option. It is a command. But far more than that, it's the greatest privilege and joy we've been offered. Do you realize that this reward that Jesus is talking about, the church, is the greatest privilege and reward that we can have been offered? We don't naturally see it as a blessing, though. In fact, we, we can't see the blessing of it until we've forsaken all. Notice Jesus didn't chase after the rich man and saying, uh, no, excuse me, don't leave sad. Listen, let me explain to you what a great blessing it will be once you get 100 times back. He didn't do any of that because he knows the guy can't see it until he forsakes. How many would consider making a life-altering decision, a life-costing decision, a death-to-my-very-self kind of decision for the purpose of gaining true spiritual community in the church? How many would decide... To turn down a pay raise, a life-costing kind of decision. A pay raise because it would mean removing your family from a community in which they're experiencing God's grace. Because, because it's almost like these people are my brothers, my sisters, my, my mother, my father, my family. It's, it's, it's like we're, we're family. Why, why, why? That's a priority to me. We think it's heroic to leave family and friends to go overseas to preach the gospel. And we should because it is. Though few actually do it. We, we certainly think it's heroic. But why shouldn't we have the same mentality toward making decisions that cost us in order that we might serve our church community in the very place God has us? I mean, it's like God is some sort of geographical discriminator. Like, I love those people on the other side of the sea, but I don't love these people right next door to you. I, no, I don't love them. You know, I love those people in the church and. Madagascar or wherever it is, I don't necessarily love the person down the row from you because, well, they live in America. Well, we think it's heroic to make sacrifices for people in one geographic region, but why not for the geographic region we live in? Maybe because we find that so easily, it makes it a lot easier to dismiss sacrifices because we live here. Maybe. Does the community of Christ factor into your decision-making process, or does only self factor in? It's more common to, to hear of leaving house, brother, sister, mother, father, children, uh, or lands, in the context of being rejected because we became a Christian. Yeah, we, may be, we have to forsake them because to follow Christ, they're going to reject us. And certainly that is an element of it. Or, in another scenario, we might hear of it if we become all arrogant, toward our believing family members about how much better our theology is than theirs and we're always talking about it and they get tired of us and, 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 and we, don't, we feel forsaken by them but by the way that is not an aspect of it that's our own sinful doing we should change but Christ calls us not just when we become Christians and people reject us because we're believers but he calls us for his sake in the gospel to lay down our very self life even with our believing family for his sake sometimes if that family goes nuclear a lot you know, maybe you're in one of those families where they're believers, but they, like, fight a lot. Then, like, forsaking yourself might mean spending more time with them and loving them and forgiving them and dealing with your own bitterness and encouraging them and being gracious. And sometimes when your family's believing and you love spending time with them, it means sacrificing that time to go spend it with others that you might not enjoy being around as much. You see, we can't just draw a line on, you know, it's family versus the other family. No, it's, 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 it's a little more complex than that. It's losing our very self. 
That's the issue here. We've, we've, we've heard all sorts of stories about the problem of pastors whose children are a wreck because they neglect them. Now, I'm not sure that they always neglect them because they're serving Christ. I, I wonder if sometimes they neglect them because they're, they're worried about position or status or power or having the biggest church in town or whatever it might be. But we should also consider lives that are a wreck even among Christians, even among pastors, because the family was the idol that was being worshipped and the community of Christ, the sacrifice on the altar that was given up for the sake of family. It works both ways. And I might argue that there are more families that are a wreck because we made the family an idol than there are because we made the church an idol. William Willimon writes the following account. He says, and just listen to this story he tells. My, my wife's father, he writes, was a minister. There, there was a time when she somewhat resented that because of their work in the church. Her, her parents were engaged so much of the time in church work and had little time for their children. However, as she later saw among some of her friends, the burden of parents who have nothing more important to do in their lives than to live for their children, she saw what a gift her parents had given her in raising her in a parsonage family. In other words, a a pastor's household. Unlike some parents, her parents were not exclusively, selfishly turned in toward the interests of their family. They had the church. They made it clear to their children that others often had a claim upon their time and concern. They had something more important to do with their lives than simply give their lives for their biological children. They were members of a larger family called the church. As I read that, I I can't help but think about the times we sat with our kids as they were growing and explained to them, listen, we love you and we would love to have more time with you and we'd love to have more evenings that we're home. But here's reality. We are serving other people. And so we're going to live in this tension, not having as much time with you as you want or as we want. And believe me, one day you'll wish we had less time, so we'll make up for it now. <laughs> and it should always be a bit of a tension because it should involve sacrifice on the one hand but not pursuit of selfish power and gain and position and being everything that everybody else needs either, on the other hand. But that doesn't just go for pastors and their families. It goes for all of us. Willimon continues. He says, The cross teaches us to have no qualms about suffering in service to the gospel. What is immoral is not one suffering in service to the gospel, but rather one suffering in service to triviality. You can't smuggle self into the kingdom and find community. You can't smuggle self into the kingdom and find community. You must forsake your very self. And when you do, you'll find that right now you have an entire orchard of fruit available to you called the church. The moment you forsake. Why do so few ever experience this blessing of community? Because we haven't forsaken our very selves yet. Now to the, the, the final question. Why is this community so hard to find? If, if you were to look at www.visitstpeteclearwater.com, you'll see images of the country's best beaches, great restaurants, fun and exciting activities, beautiful places, and beautiful people. Now, I, I love this city that we live in, um, but I know that that is not a clear picture of where I live. The pictures are real enough, don't get me wrong. The problem is what you don't see. 
You don't see the homeless guys that I talk to when I go running. You don't see the nursing home at the end of the next block. You don't see the Section 8 housing across the alley from the back of my house. That's not what you see in those pictures. Why? Well, because people want a vacation to an idealized version of St. Petersburg or Clearwater, not the actual cities. And if they have enough money, they can do just that. Many want the same thing from the church. They want the idealized version of the church, not the actual church. And they're going to say they haven't found community until they find this ideal. But that's not what Jesus promised. Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks of the serious danger of confusing real brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship. He calls that the greatest danger. Many seek an idealized version of Christian community rather than the actual community God has given as a blessing. The actual kind involves suffering with those who suffer, grieving with those who grieve, hurting with them when they hurt, crying with them when they cry, recognizing that Life is difficult, and we walk through those difficulties together, and we don't understand a lot of things together. We don't have to fix them. We have to weep with them. The idealized community, the kind that I often find myself drawn to, involves people who are just like me, or more accurately, are just like how I perceive myself to be, because actually if they were just like me, I wouldn't want to hang around them. Yeah, because they would be a lot like me, and that'd be, like, very aggravating and frustrating and difficult. But I have this version of myself that doesn't actually exist, and I want them to be like that. And that doesn't actually exist either. The idealized version of Christian community is more like a Christian vacation resort than a Christian community. Getting along with people of the same financial status, personal taste, skin color, or fellow Starbucks lovers is easy. Offering spiritual community to difficult people, hard-to-forgive relatives, people repeatedly uh, responding poorly to you, that is not easy. Walking with people through their difficulties is not easy. Community is not <clears throat> congeniality. Con congeniality is for, for country club relationships, or for the rest of us who don't have the ability to be in a country club, it's for grocery store relationships. Right? Hi, how are you doing? It's so great to see you. I don't like going there and like, tell about my real self at the checkout counter. You know, I, I go to the same places frequently, and some of them know me by name, and I know them by name, but I, they don't know me. They don't know me. I'm congenial. That's great. We, friendship is good. We need to have friends, and there's a place for that, but I'm talking about deep friendship. I'm talking about real friendship. And we have to lose ourselves before we can find this kind of community. Why, why is this community so hard to see. See, it's hard to find because it's hard to see. So why is it hard to see? Because it doesn't fit our expectations. It doesn't fit our expectations. Notice, it looks like bothersome little children. Look at chapter 10, where we're at. See, the context around these verses really informs the verses. In chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, somehow my Bible went to Matthew chapter 10. That's not where I am. Um, Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 13 through 16. People are bringing little children to Jesus. And the disciples rebuke them. Jesus is too busy for this. Jesus doesn't have time for this. And Jesus became indignant. He actually became angry. 
I would dare argue that he was angrier here than he was when he had the whip in the temple grounds, but he's hot. Now, he doesn't get hot often, right? But he's hot here. Why? Because they misunderstand what this community is about. They think it's a botherless community. It doesn't have time for bothersome, pesky little children. But notice in the community reward that Jesus describes in, Matthew, or in Mark 10, there we go with Matthew again, in Mark 10, 30, that we receive a hundred times as much children. Those pesky little children that they were rebuking and telling people to take them away. Those children. Now, I, 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 I first took lands. Why do I get the children? I didn't barter for that. Too bad. That comes with the orchard. You get the whole deal. It's called the church. Right? It looks like James and John. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 and following. James and John come to Jesus. Teacher, give us whatever we ask of you. Well, what are you asking? But what we're asking, Jesus, is that one of us can sit at your right hand and the other at the left. Well, you power-hungry little brats, get the heck out of my kingdom. Is that what he said? No. No, he didn't say that. Now, of course, the other ten got angry, it tells us. In, in verse 41, why did they get angry? Because they wanted those seats. Not because they were better, less power-hungry than James and John. No, they were just like them. That's the problem. People vying for position and power rather than having a clue about Jesus' actual agenda. They're in the kingdom too. They're part of the reward. We get them. And Jesus doesn't boot them out. See, I'm thinking, this, this kingdom is so wonderful. Yeah, James and John, you're out. That was really a bad move. You're out. But they're not out. They're in. And it's a good thing because if they weren't, I wouldn't be either. I know my life. I know my heart. And, and, and Jesus, so he asked him, so, well, well, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to undergo? Sure, Jesus! <laughs> and he didn't even say, you're so clueless, you dummies. No, you aren't. Because he knew one day they would be, that they would suffer, that they would get it. And he's got the patience to wait for that. It looks like the people who need us to lay down our lives for them that we see in verses 42 through 45 where Jesus goes on to explain to James and John and the rest of the disciples that, that no, this isn't how leadership works here. You don't exert power over one another. No, rather, whoever wants to become great must become your servant, your slave, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his very self. Same language of Mark eight thirty-five. To give his life as a ransom for many. You see, we give our very selves because he gave his very self for us. And he models for us what it's all about. But that means that there are going to be people in this kingdom, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, who need us to lay down our lives for them. That's what it means. And in chapter 10, verse 31, we read it at the beginning. It's part of our text, that line about the last being first and the first last. It seems that it might mean that how we're positioned in the age to come has something to do with how we serve, how we give up our lives in this age among the little children, the sons of Zebedee, and even the Bartimaeus types in the church. Oh, well, that's right. It also looks like 
blind Bartimaeus that we have in verses 46 through 52. Which is fascinating because he's the one guy who can't see in the story. He, he is, we, we, they, they come to Jericho, Jesus and his disciples, there's a large crowd. And here's this blind man named Bartimaeus. And it's kind of funny because it's Bartimaeus, I mean, to anyone that would have been reading then, it kind of blatantly and clearly means Bar, son of Timaeus. And then it tells us Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus. Like, yeah, I know, you just said that. There's, there's this emphasis on what his name means. Why? Because Timaeus was his father's name, and Timaeus means nobody. So he's a blind man who's really a nobody, and by the way, a son of a nobody. He's not the rich man. He's as opposite of the rich man as you can get. Okay? The very opposite of the rich man. He's the son of a nobody. And, and, and what happens? He's blind, but he seems to understand something about Jesus and the kind of Messiah he is that nobody else in the, the, the whole setting seems to get. And as soon as Jesus calls him, he gladly gets rid of the one thing he had, his cloak, throwing it away from himself, leaping up and going to Jesus. And that's kind of hard to do when you're blind, by the way. Now, I'm often like Bartimaeus, at least in the part that I can't see. I don't see the community properly. When we're blind, we, we want the ideal, and we keep saying that we can't find community because we don't want pesky little children or power-hungry disciples or the people that need us to give ourselves up for them. We don't want them. We want ideal community. That's so much more pleasant. When we see enough of who Jesus is, what his kingdom is about, we'll throw aside our cloak. We'll leap up. We'll run to the king and his glorious kingdom and gladly receive all those whom it can, of whom it can be said, the kingdom of God is made up of such as these. Now, there is one in the list there in chapter 10 that is not. There's one that is, is what it does not look like, this community. Oddly enough, it's the rich man. The one guy that's in our idealized version of community. He's the one that's not in there. The one that has everything taken care of. He never presents any troubles because he can pay for anything he needs. That's, that, that, that's the one that's not in the community because he wasn't willing to forsake self and lose his life. He didn't have the hunger for power that James and John had, nor the irritation with children that the other disciples or the disciples had, but, but he's still not in because he wasn't willing to lose his life. Why is spiritual community hard to find? Because it's hard to see. We're Bartimaeus types. We need eyes to see. We, we need to stop looking for ideal community and start looking for the least, for whatever we do for the least of these we do for Christ. And Now then it's easier to find when we start looking that way. Friday and Saturday, the leadership team for the ladies' ministry of the church went on a planning retreat. They, they asked if I would open their time with a message, and so I did. I, I titled it, and I, I worked actually from this same text, Mark 10, 29, and 30. I titled it, Where Are All the Mothers and Sisters? I worked on answering that question. It was rooted here. There are not only a hundredfold mothers and sisters, though, but there are a hundredfold mothers and sisters, brothers, children, homes, fields. You see, I've experienced these many times as we've stayed with family in other cities, other towns, and even in faraway places like Madagascar. 
as if they are family, living and sharing life together and without a hiccup. Spending time for two weeks solid in very confined quarters with people from four or five different continents all at one time and, and, and doing life together and getting along and working out issues and you name it together. Where are the mothers, the sisters, the brothers and children that are in your inheritance? Look around the room. This is the starting place. You see, our community is much bigger than merely a local church, but it's never smaller than a local church. It's never smaller than that. Because until we can see it in a local church, we haven't really seen it anywhere else. It's the pesky little children. It's the troublesome brothers who are vying for power. It's all of these things that seem to get under our skin. They're part of that community, and we have to see that in the least. The suffering. The hurting. What is the greatest obstacle to real community? Self. Do you you want the community that Jesus describes? Do you want that? You must lose your very self in order to find the life that is truly life in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as I engage this subject in these scriptures, I recognize that I look through a glass darkly, and so even as I present it, in some ways I'm sure I'm describing what I don't see clearly. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one here where they are at and what they need to hear and use these words to to help us see what we need to forsake and how we need to follow Christ and help us see the reward that you have given us already right now in this present life and in the life to come more of it unending in Jesus name Amen